Welcome back to Stat Chat, Dishing It with D. Klatz. This is Dave Klatsky of Colgate Men's Basketball. So I know it's been a little while since we've had our last one, but uh, happy to say we're back on track. This, is, this one's got a lot of good information. The guest is John Andrzejczyk, who's uh, currently working at Johns Hopkins. And to me, John is the perfect example of someone in this business that um, really has a way to get ahead. So he didn't play in college. And, and as we know, playing in college can help open a lot of doors. It can, it can get you in there. But as far as I know, there's been no direct correlation between how successful you are as a player meaning how successful you're going to be as a coach. So John right now has found that nice niche in that he is a really smart guy. So he, he knows stats backwards and forwards. He does his own studies. He, can, he knows, uh, he knows uh, professors that can help him. And this, in this podcast, you'll see there's some stuff that he introduces that really isn't that out there. So he gets into scheduling, recruiting, and rebounding, all three of which kind of introduce new ideas that at least for me, I hadn't really thought about or, or talked about that much. So um, to me, this is a really good podcast. John is an up-and-coming guy in this business, and, and hopefully uh, I can continue to talk to him about some of the statistical things that are on my mind or, or on any of your guys' minds. But uh, I think you'll enjoy this one. There's a lot of good information. It goes a little over, over my normal time, but I thought it was too good to cut him off. So... Uh, here we go. Let's do it. Enjoy it. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. I am Dave Klasky from Colgate University, and today we have with us John Andershek. John has just recently been hired at Johns Hopkins University, where I know he is excited to finally get on the road, as well as his head coach, Josh Leffler, uh, who hired him. John previously worked at San Francisco as director of basketball operations for one year, and before that, Columbia, where he also worked as a director of basketball operations and where he went to school and graduated early. Uh, and strangely enough, John also is from the beautiful town of Hamilton, New York. So we know, uh, we know that place very well. John, welcome to the show. How's it going? Uh, it's going great. Going great. I sh- I'm sure I know every spot that you've gone to lunch over the last, you know, five years living in Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, that's a limited number, but it's, they're they're pretty good. So I'm sure you've enjoyed them like we have as well. Um, all right, let's <laughs> let's jump question. right into it. I think John has uh, uh, this show will be good for for college coaches that um, you know with what's right around the corner recruiting and for some coaches that have to do scheduling. John is kind of an expert in both. So let's jump right into scheduling. Um, you've done scheduling for Columbia and San Fran. Can you just walk us through a little bit? Uh, of what you look for when you're when you're going through that uh, process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've I've been doing scheduling now for uh, three plus years, and uh, and at two different places at San Francisco and at Columbia, and both places sort of had different uh, objectives for scheduling and different resources from schedule for scheduling that provided uh, different opportunities and different challenges. Um, and so a big part of scheduling is sort of this knowing what your goal is and, uh, you know, how you can achieve it. Uh, the challenge of scheduling is that 
is fundamentally it's a it's a challenge of predicting. You have to sign a contract four months, maybe three years in advance of playing any of the games, and you have to make your best guess as to how good your team is going to be and how good your opponent is going to be. And that's where I think we can use advanced stats to sort of make better guesses. Okay. So going off of that, talk a little bit about your objectives, one at Columbia and then at San Fran. What what, what do you mean by that? Like uh, we all want to, we all want to win. Are you talking about uh, kind of working the RPI so you can get an at-large, which I guess wasn't as important for Columbia but might have been for San Fran? Um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I think one of the first uh, most important aspects of scheduling at different schools is going to be the what your financial obligations are. Do you have to raise money for the school? Do you have to raise money for other teams in the department? Or do you have money to spend on games? And in that way, Columbia and San Francisco were in different buckets. Uh, Columbia, we had to raise a certain amount of money every year. And it, it sort of changed over the course of the years. Uh, but it was somewhere between one guarantee game and two guarantee games, depending on the season. And then at San Francisco, we actually had a, a pretty decent budget to purchase our own home games. And being able to purchase home games is a huge, huge advantage in college basketball. Uh, in college basketball, if two evenly matched teams played, the home team would win 65% of the time. So uh, putting it another way, if two teams played a full season of games, 31 games uh, at one site, the home team would go, you know, 20 and 11, and the road team would go 11 and 20. <laughs> and you can imagine sort of the narratives that would be said about this 11 and 20 team. You know, their their coach just doesn't drop good plays at the end of the games, you know, their uh, their guys sort of lack the intestinal fortitude to make the big shot or get the big stop on defense. Uh, you know, the where, where are just, these numbers coming yeah. from? Where, where did you? So, what what uh, metric or system or rankings did you use to kind of get to this? Yeah, it's, that's a great point. So, most of the stuff I'm going to talk about in scheduling comes primarily from Ken Pomeroy and some of the work he's done on his website. Uh, there's also been a lot of work done in the NBA uh, on sort of home court advantage, too. So I'm going to go between those two numbers to try to sort of paint a fuller picture of home court advantage. Okay. Okay. So right. now two evenly, team, two evenly matched teams, 65-35. Now, yep. what, what are the numbers – for where it becomes even. So let's say we're ranked 200th. Like, you know, can you roughly estimate who you can play at home that the game might be even? Yeah, yeah. So one of the really neat things that Ken Pomeroy now does is uh, every spring he sells to Division One coaching staffs a preseason projections uh, for $300. And those projections uh, give you your winning percentage, or at least you can extrapolate from them, your winning percentage at home, 
on the road at a neutral site against any of the other 350 Division One teams. Okay, so so you know, taking this a step further, if you guys are number 200 uh, playing at home, you could probably bump up to even 140, 150 at home, and you'll still be the favorite, or that'll be a 50-50 game. Wow. That's a that's a big deal, and and, and that's based on his numbers going back uh, a few years, or how, how much data do you have on that? Like, has it changed over time, yeah. or is that pretty going consistent? back fifteen seasons? Fifteen seasons, and have you looked at if it's still the same? Like, so over fifteen seasons, yes. How about over two seasons? Is it is it pretty much statistically significant that it'll be the same? Over a small period and a long period. Yeah. Now there's there's this uh, sort of macro level trend that's been going on for home court advantage to get slightly less over time. But by slightly less, we mean you know in the last 15 years, home court advantage has you know shrunk from 66.5 percent to 65 percent. You know, so it's okay, going so down. It's a yeah. Yeah, but it's it's negligible. Okay, so now getting back to Columbia and San Fran, so any home games you could get, preferably against teams that might be ranked higher than you, would be advantageous for your RPI, but are you always thinking about RPI? No, and that's, you know, frankly, there's there's 351 Division One teams, and for most teams in Division One, you're probably not worried about the RPI whatsoever you know correct you're at most jobs there, yeah. yeah at most jobs you're just trying to maximize wins get to 20 wins get to the cbi get to the cit or you might be of the school of thought like we want to challenge our guys uh and make sure it's all about the league and make sure you know they're as tested uh when we get to the league like that's a strategy yale has used for years Makes sense. Makes sense. You have a coach that's been there over 15 years, and he has uh, very good job security. So that does make sense for them. Um, and then have you done any type of study on, now that we're going there, on 20-win seasons and getting to the CBI or CI, you know, one of those postseason tournaments, uh, does that then lead to coaching upgrades? You know what I mean? Like uh, – has that, have you done any type of work on that, that uh, hirings are based on wins and not ranking, I guess? Um, I have not done any studies on that. Uh, anecdotally, I would tell you it seems to be right, but but I haven't studied that out. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll have to have to look into that one because I, I, uh, I think you're right as well that wins seems to be the, the, the better – uh, indicator of coaching upgrades than maybe what your final record might be, or final ranking, I should say, uh, Ken Palm yeah. or, or top 25 or, or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one, one of the big takeaways from this uh, bump for playing at home is that uh, the home-and-home home series, which is kind of the common way we schedule games at, at Colgate or at Columbia or really anywhere sort of mid-major and down. Uh, that home-and-home home series tends to lead to a split, one win, one loss. 
it, it's very rare to see a team uh, be favored in both of those games. Uh, and and sort of why is that? Well, it's because it's just really hard to win that road game. You know, if you were the 150th best team, you would actually be better off playing number 100 at home where you'd have a 53% chance to win than playing even number 200 on the road where you'd have a 43% chance to win. So, you know, a lot of times, and this is a strategy we use a ton at Columbia, you are better off playing good teams at home than bad teams on the road. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Because Team 100, why why would they come play Team 150 on the road? Like, how, how are you getting that game? Yeah, and and that's the challenge. And a lot of the stuff I was doing in scheduling was just cold, cold calling people, you know, sending out emails, sending out texts. You know, at the at the end of the day, you can have all the knowledge on how these things work, but you got to put in the effort, you know. And you're going to hear a lot of no's in scheduling, and that's just kind of how it goes. Uh, but one little niche that we actually found is, uh, and we weren't sure what it was going to work. But we found that we could receive uh, larger guarantees from, uh, you know, Power 5 opponents at 90, 95, 100 grand. And we could actually turn those into smaller buy games of our own, you know. So uh, our last year at Columbia uh, in 2016, we actually got bought by Kansas State for 95 grand and by Northwestern for 95 grand. Uh, and we lost both of those games. We lost to Northwestern in overtime by three, lost to Kansas State by ten. But we turned that money into four home wins. So we played Howard at home for forty grand, played Delaware at home for thirty grand, Maryland Eastern Shore for thirty five grand, Robert Morris for thirty grand, and we won all of those games. So in essence, we turned that one hundred and ninety grand of guarantee money into a four and two record and a fifty five grand profit. Pretty good. It's pretty good. Now what, do you have any research on why why home court is such a big advantage? I mean we everyone this has been discussed so many in so many different ways, but um curious to hear your opinion on the reason for sixty five thirty five split between even teams. Yeah, so there's there's actually a really great book out there that I would recommend to all your listeners called uh, Sports Casting, uh, The Hidden Influences Behind How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won by uh, Tobias Moshkovitz and John Wortham. And uh, they did a huge analysis on home court advantage across multiple sports, across NFL, NBA, uh, Major League Soccer, International Soccer, uh, trying to figure out what this is. And, you know, so first off, some things that they found that it's not. It's not that players are any less skilled on the road. So they, they went into each sport and they tried to find aspects of the game uh, where there's no way that sort of, uh, you know, referees could be involved, that, uh, you know, the game would be played in a different way home or on the road. So, for instance, free throw shooting. The height of the goal is the exact same on the home or the road. You shoot from the same distance away. Uh, and what do they find at the NBA? In the last two decades, 
NBA visiting teams have shot 75.9% at the free throw line. Home teams, guess what they've shot? 75.9%. Exactly the same. Uh, Punters punted the same distance home or away. Uh, In the NHL, uh, in a shootout, that's an exact 50-50 split right down the middle, home versus away. Uh, Pitchers in Major League Baseball throw the same velocity with the same movement, home versus away. So it's not the case that when we go on the road, our athletes are just not as good at their sport in some way. Uh, the other thing that they've studied is they've looked at uh, the rigors of travel. So Colgate flies out to USC or flies to Washington to play, or you know somebody goes west-east. And they found that that's a very minimal impact. Uh, if there's like a huge... Uh, change in your sleep pattern where you're making a, you know, six, 12 hour time difference change. Well, that's something. But other than that, like when you look at teams from the same city, for instance, the Los Angeles Clippers play a road game against the LA Lakers. So literally they're playing in the exact same stadium. They're waking up in the same bed. They're taking the same routine. You get to the facility. You find that the home court advantage for the Lakers in that game is exactly the same as if they're hosting the Celtics or the Timberwolves or another team from out of region. Hmm. So, okay. okay. So keep going. Uh, so, so you know, they kept going, looked at other factors. Uh, what actually is it? Uh, and it turns out the single greatest contributor to home court advantage is official bias. Uh, uh, and this was first. Be careful. You're, first you're not a coach. Soccer. You don't want to uh, piss off the refs. <laughs> no Luckily, question. I don't think there's too many refs listening to the podcast. But, but go on. Uh, I hope Reggie Greenwood's not uh not tuned in. I saw him a couple weeks ago. So uh, <laughs> anyway, so so they first found this in soccer, uh, and they looked at stoppage time. You know, so after the 90 minutes are played, how much time does the referee put on the clock? All right. And they found that if the home team was ahead by one goal uh, going into stoppage time, the referee would add two minutes to the clock on average. But if the home team was behind by one goal, the referee would add four minutes on average. Uh, okay, so that's so soccer. Just, what do you got for me for basketball? Yep, yep. okay. So for basketball, uh, NBA home teams – shoot uh, somewhere between one and one and a half more free throws per game than the road team. They also, home teams also turn the ball over less, and they get called for fewer violations like traveling over and back, illegal screens, uh, things like that. Um, Loose ball fouls and offensive fouls in particular go the home team's way at twice the rate of the road team. Um, and then fouls that change possession, like like illegal screens, we see this all the time, are four times more likely to go the home team's way. And huh. sort of the takeaway from all of this is that referees are using these sort of subjective uh, decisions uh, subconsciously as opportunities to uh, relieve pressure on them, to help the home team, uh, to – uh, you know, get them off their back. And it's not conscious. They're not trying to help the home team, but it's just we're human beings. We don't like being screamed at. 
We want to be liked. We want to get the call correct. And when there's 20,000 people screaming for a block and you've got, you know, a quarter of a second to figure out what it is, just subconsciously your brain uses that information and wants to fill in the blanks to say, okay, that must be a block. All my context clues around me, all the way the crowd's reacting, tells me this must be a block. So it's a block. Interesting. Interesting. I, I think there's definitely a human element to it just because uh, the momentum of a game, like momentum is one of those things that stat, stat people don't really like to hear about, but being human is something you can't control. And when a game gets going and the momentum is going one way and the crowd's into it, it's definitely tough for refs to kind of go the other way on a, on a 50-50 call. So it does make sense in a, in a little bit, but I'm sure that refs after this came out, Definitely, especially in the NBA, I'm sure, um, had to kind of deal with this and, and, and change the way they think a little bit um, to try and correct it. Because I, I don't think people would want this, although I, I'm not sure I'm that upset with there being a slight home court advantage. I think, uh, it, it, especially the NBA, basketball is an entertainment game. I think you kind of do yeah. want the home team having a slight advantage, and it's not too hard to overcome. But it is a slight advantage, so I'm, I'm not sure that uh, in closed doors the NBA isn't saying this is this is not a uh, not the worst thing. But uh, we're obviously no not hitting those sells tickets. closed doors. So yes, yes, it sells um, tickets. You want the home team to win. Fans keep coming yep, to the games. Yep. Um, all right. So anything else you want to get into on scheduling, or, or uh, are we ready to move on here to? something a little bit more pertinent for college coaches at this time of year? Um, I, w- I would like to dip into RPI a little bit. Uh, how does Perfect. that sound? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so when we got to San Francisco, one of the first projects we did uh, was we tried to make this sort of deep dive into how do you gain the RPI? How do you set yourself up to give you the best chance to get in that large bid? Uh, and the whole idea behind this was is we, we didn't really have a roster or a team that was ready to get in that large. But if we were going to succeed, we needed to be there in four, five, six years. And so when the time was right for us to go for it, we needed to know what going for it meant. And so one of the first things I did was I worked with a uh, professor at the University of San Francisco, a math professor by the name of Stephen Devlin. And and he's been great. And we uh, looked at, you know, something like the last three years of uh, of scheduling, you know, every game that's been played in the country and tried to develop this model to predict what your RPI, your final RPI would be, just based on which games you're playing, you know. So before any of the games are played in July and August when the schedules are are released, how well can we predict your RPI? And it turns out it's RPI is extremely predictable, uh, extremely predictable. Um, and one of the big reasons why it's predictable is that middle uh, 50% of the RPI, which is your opponent's uh, win percentage, is very predictable because you know uh, your conference, you're, you, know, you know, if I'm Clemson, I'm in the ACC, 
I know about how good the league is going to be every single year. And I can tell based on years of data that ACC teams are going to win around 75 to 80% of their non-conference games. And then in the Big 12, 79 to 83% of their conference games. Um, and so when you enter in all these factors, the years and years of scheduling data, you get this big database that tells you which games are likely to be good for your RPI that will help your RPI and which games are going to hurt your RPI. Okay, so so you can that, that makes sense. You can kind of predict what someone's record will be based on just based on the previous years and team X in the ACC is going to be, you know, uh 75% winning percentage going into conference. And then you can also yeah. predict conference based on these these preseason projections like closely enough to be able to predict RPI is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, well, well, also, you know, zooming out, once you get into conference play, it's a zero-sum game. One team wins, one team loses. So all you have to do is, you know, take that 500 and just subtract out what that team is going to do. So if that team is going to be a 5-13 and 13 team, well, that's going to go up to 52%. If that team is going to be, you know, Duke can go 16-2, and two, well, you know, that's going to pull that down a little bit. Um but just based on those those ratios of, you know, how many conference games each team usually plays versus non-conference games, and then schools tend to schedule a similar way year after year. Uh, you know, Clemson's going to uh, stick to a certain profile, just as Colgate is, just as Mississippi Valley State. Okay. So now that knowing that, who – so let's let's pretend you're a top 50 team because this like like we talked about this doesn't really apply for teams 100 through 350. So you're a top 50 team. You're in charge of scheduling. Who are the best teams to schedule to to gain yeah. to to get your RPI the highest? Yeah. Uh, so so the the sweet spot in RPI gaming is to find these teams that are likely to put up gaudy records. Uh, because they play in weak conferences. Um, because the reality is, like, the best team in one of those low-major conferences is probably still a team you're going to win more often, you're going to beat more often than not, especially at home. You know, so in uh, so for last season, for instance, some teams that, that this would apply to would be, like, UT Arlington, who went 27-9, uh, Monmouth, 27-7, Akron, 27-9. Valpo, 24 and 9. Florida Gulf Coast, 26 and 8. Winthrop, 26 and 7. UNC Greensboro, 25 and 10. Those are the type of teams that you're trying to find. Uh, because they're, they're really, there's, there's no downside to it. You're going to do really well on your factor two in the RPI, which is your opponent's win percentage, because they're going to win 75% of their games in a bad league. So that, that's looking back. Which obviously is a whole lot easier, <laughs> you know. Yes. Looking yeah. forward, so do you basically just take basically conferences like ranked thirteen to twenty four, and then really do an analysis of who's going to be the top two teams in those leagues, and hope that they're, and then kind of look at their non conference schedule over the past couple of years and make sure that it's not too hard. And then really just hit those teams, you know, hit those twenty to twenty-five teams, and 
really try and play them at home because you shouldn't lose, but there's, they're going to be really good RPI wins. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's where some of the advanced stats come in, you know, using the Ken Pomeroy information, uh, cause he projects how good these teams are going to be going into the season. And he also projects a rough, you know, win-loss record. And so, you know, everybody thought Monmouth was going to be pretty darn good this year. You know, we didn't know if they were going to be at large good or if they were just going to be a really good team in the MAC. But nobody thought they were going to be a bad team. You know, so that was sort of a, a safe bet there. And some of these are more safe than others. But you can look at the trends and where the projections are at, and you can usually get a good, uh, at least some good guesses. And that's what this is about, is making good guesses. There's nothing that's set in stone. You know, two of Monmouth's players could tear their ACL in, in October practices, and all of a sudden they're a really bad team. But all of this is just about playing the odds. So kind of like we talked about this uh, offline, but just looking at, at some of the teams for this year uh, that might not be in power conferences that are looking to be pretty good, uh, our, our Illinois State looks like one of them, College of Charleston, uh, Vermont again, um, I don't even want to say this one, but Bucknell, um, yeah. you know, teams like that this year, maybe Yale, uh, Oakland looks pretty good. So, so schools like that is kind of what you're getting at is, is you can play those teams on, uh, you shouldn't be looking at a field like there's a, a party out there that says, well, I can't play, I can't play, uh, Vermont at home. They got a chance of beating me. But the reality is you're saying that you still are going to be like a 75 to 80% chance of beating them and it's going to help your RPI. Yeah, especially if you're truly a team that's good enough to get in that large bid. That means you're a top 50, maybe top 60 team in the country. Uh, you know, these teams we've been talking about are usually in the 80 to 120 range. And so when you factor in the fact you're at home, these are going to be 70% games, 75% games. And you're going to do so well on that opponent's record metric that it's, it's going to overcome any increased chance of uh, losing that game. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Now, uh, something uh, very pertinent to July, we are going to move on to recruiting, um, which we're all about to hit the road in July for live recruiting. And um, I'm sure you're excited to get out there for for Johns Hopkins for the first time uh, uh, as an assistant coach. Now, what are we looking for out there? What, what do we know? What can we what can we project? What do advanced stats say about how we should be recruiting at, at these different levels? Yeah, so frankly, we're just moving into this new frontier, which is using data to uh, better evaluate uh, high school prospects. Uh, if you go back five years ago, this didn't exist at all. Um, and frankly, it's just getting to where it's, it's useful, and, you know, I think in the next two, three years, and hopefully, you know, myself and Professor Devlin at San Francisco, we're going to be a big part of this, sort of uh, taking this to the next level, where it can really assist coaching staffs in identifying prospects to go evaluate. Okay. So, now, elaborating on that, what are you looking at? 
what, what kind of data is there? What kind of data can we use? What can we see with our eyes uh, as opposed to what can we just see uh, on a sheet of paper? What, what, what kind of stuff are you guys using? Yep. Uh, so for the past uh, four seasons, including uh, this summer, uh, Nike and Adidas have been keeping box scores for every single AAU game that is played. And then for the last three seasons, Under Armour has been keeping those box scores as well. And so with all of that, you have a database of thousands of data points uh, in terms of rebounding rates, offensive ratings, usage rates, assist rates. And what we're trying to do right now is sort of replicate what the NBA has done. Because the NBA, uh, in, you know, building their draft models, uses all of this college data, uses, you know, 30, 40 different stats, including wingspans and heights and, you know, college production to try to uh, populate their board and order their uh, their potential draft picks from from top to bottom. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is, is bring this to the college level because at the NBA level, uh, you know, there used to be this sort of battle between analytics and scouting on, you know, which way should we go in drafting. And it, it turns out there's a good amount of data um, that shows that uh, teams picking off models have had a better track record than even just the actual picks by general managers. So if you go to a website uh, called tothemean.com, really good website, they compile uh, draft models from something like 20 different analytics guys. You know, these are the Kevin Peltons and, uh, ESPN has its own, uh, analytics, uh, model in there that rank recruits for every single draft class. And what we found is the consensus of those models has consistently year after year outperformed the actual picks. So if you just picked off of those models, you would on average get a better player that contributes more to winning that is worth more wins above replacement than the pick actual GMs are making. And so because of this data, uh, front offices across the NBA are moving further and further in that direction. Now, the good ones still use both pieces of information, and their scouts inform the analytics just as the analytics informs the scouts. But there's almost nobody now that is just drafting solely off scouting. Okay, now... How do we apply that to the Adidas, Under Armour, Nike, Slash, and then the T going further, the non-circuit events stats that, you know, aren't kept officially, but, you know, you can watch a game and kind of keep stats of, of a player uh, and kind of get an idea of what his numbers are. How, how can we – or what have we seen with those numbers in your research over the last four years that we have? Yeah. Uh, so what we did was we took uh, every player, all their AU data, and we matched it to uh, their recruitment using verbal commits. So uh, where did they get offers from? Where ultimately did they commit? Uh, and then we tried to build a profile to predict for each guy based on his stat line, is he a high-major recruit, is he a mid-major recruit, a low-major recruit, or just not a Division One player? And and we've learned a few things from doing that. Uh, one, and this is no surprise to anybody that's watched the games, 
Uh, Nike is the best, best, most competitive shoe circuit out there right now. Uh, it's, it's just a cut above Under Armour and Adidas. Uh, it takes a lower uh, productivity level in Nike to get to Division One, to get to high major, than it does in either of the other shoe company leagues. Now, do you have those numbers? Like, uh, what's uh, uh, I mean, I guess we'll get to what's important, but what's a standard high major points per game offensive rating? Uh, used to, you know, wh- what's the what's the baseline for a high major player that you've seen? Yeah, well, well, one of the really interesting takeaways we've had from going through the data is that there's not a single one size fit all stat line that makes a player a high-major recruiter or a mid-major recruiter or a low-major recruit because it varies a lot by position and by height. So you'll actually find in Nike, you will find bigs, you know, 6'9", 250-pound kids that are averaging, you know, four points a game, five points a game that will end up signing high-major. You'll also find 5'8 point guards that are averaging 16 points a game that only get low major, and if they're 16 points a game in Adidas, they might not get Division One at all. And so a lot of this is a lot of this is relative. And then, and that, and that's one of the big takeaways is that you know, and that's where models are good and helpful is they can take into account all of these different stats at once. They can take into account the assist rates and the fouls drawn and the uh, how well they shoot from two and three. They don't have to just look at one thing, like maybe how we, you know, have to do as humans. Yeah, so what have, what have been found to be the best predictors um, to level of recruitment? Yeah, so the, uh, the number one predictor by far is usage rating. Uh, and so usage rating is how often do you end a possession by taking a shot, uh, by turning over the ball, uh, by drawing a foul, getting to the foul line. All right. And it, it turns out it matters. It seems to matter a lot more to coaches to have players that take a lot of shots than players that make all the shots they take. So consistently, time after time, we'll find guys that take on a large offensive load and maybe aren't that efficient, get recruited much higher than a guy that takes a smaller offensive role and is more of a role player on his EYBL team, but is very good in his role and, you know, makes every drop-off dunk he gets or, you know, makes every catch-and-shoot three that he gets. So hopefully there's not too many players listening to this that just go out on the circuit now <laughs> and just fire away because they think they get high major by being 35% uh, usage rating. Uh, so that's no that would question. be bad. If you, and that would probably change if you want if you want high major, go for J.R. Smith model. That's that's what I'm saying. <laughs> so besides usage, is there anything else um, that that you guys have found might help predict level of recruitment? And I keep saying level of recruitment because uh, we don't know if they're right yet. It's only been four years, yeah. and I think that's something you want to eventually test. That I'd love to see is is how do they do at college? I'm not even sure what the basis would be. What what would you use to say, are you a successful player or not a successful player at a certain level? 
have you thought about that or, or started testing any of that yeah. now that we have probably a couple of years data? Yeah. So in the NBA, they use uh, either wins above uh, replacement or something called VORP, value over replacement player. Uh, and you can generate that same stat for college. And we kind of know uh, through looking at all the data, you can figure out what a replacement level player is. And you can see per that league guy's or, or better overall? than that. Is that per, per league. league? Per league. Okay, yep. per league. Because I was going to say an average player in the Patriot League is, should be different than an average player in the SEC. So, okay, yep. so that, that's very important. And, and that's where we want to go. That's the next step in this process is to match all these AAU profiles to their college data, you know. So to find out after four years playing at Colgate, playing at Towson, playing at Temple, uh, how well these kids did. And hopefully we can build this this nice database that says, all right, uh, if you play 27 minutes a game on EYBL and average 11 points at these efficiency numbers, you'll be this type of player at Colgate, you know, an all-league player. You'll be a capable starter, you know, six-man type of Temple. Uh, you know, and if you go to, uh, I don't know, Grambling, you'll be player of the year. You know, that's where we want to get is to be able to do that. Okay. So there, there's just so much here that, uh, to, to talk about. Um, I, I, I want to go back to the indi- the predictors first, but since you touched, or I, I guess after I, I mentioned this fact, you, you talk about success like what that type of player will be. Are you guys also doing what they'll be like each year? Because we have this argument in our office all the time. Is it successful if you don't play one minute your freshman and sophomore year and then junior year you're a starter and senior year you're all league? Would you recruit that player? That's, and maybe we can just talk about that, but is that – um, is that in, included in your analysis? How you'll be well? Each first year? off, personally, I would I would definitely recruit that player. Uh, definitely recruit that player. Uh, and the where's, thing I would where's tell the you line though, for you? Where, where's the line? Like, okay, so if they're all league one year, you'd take them. What if they were a solid contributor for one year? You know, what, where do you draw that line of? of taking on basically a project that you know won't help you for two years or three years, but the end result for one year, is that better than – this can probably be proven with stats, actually. Maybe this would be a, a good study. What's more valuable, a solid contributor for four years or a all-league player for one? Yeah, I think that's sort of case by case. But where I would draw the line, is going to be uh, can he start for two years? Because you know, think about it. You got you got 13 scholarships. If your whole roster was guys that started two out of four years, you would always have seven and a half cal uh, you know starter caliber players, and that's a pretty darn good team. You got seven eight guys that, sh- that are capable of starting. You know, um, now yeah, the problem is, yeah. is if the best player you recruit in that class is a guy that can only play, only start for two years and not play the other two. You know, that needs to be the second, third, fourth best player you're you're bringing in in that recruiting class. Okay, yeah. Just something to think about. I didn't mean to tangent off there. So back to yeah. uh, usage, yeah. you said he's the number one predictor. What other things 
can help predict level of recruitment? Uh, yeah, so a lot of the stuff that we've studied has actually, you know, defended coaches and corroborated the decisions that they make. And so the second most predictive factor is actually minute percentage. You know, how much does your AAU coach trust you to play in the games? If he doesn't take you out much, he likes you. He thinks you're good. He thinks you're helping your team win. And the data bears that out. Um, and then the next thing is, is height. That's huge, huge in the NBA, huge at this level. And then after that, it's actually uh, your effective field goal percentage. So how efficient are you in making the shots uh, that you take? So nowhere in there did you mention offensive rating. So that because your usage may be low, your offensive rating may be high. So that that that, that is not really that good a predictor in uh, level of recruitment. That I, that if you just looked at at a, a you know an advanced box score, cumulative box score, you would think offensive rating should matter. But you're saying it might not after all those things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's down the list, and and I think a big part of that is that uh, we found free throw rate to not be very stable from uh, AU to college. So if you draw a ton of fouls in Nike, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to draw a ton of fouls in college. But if you take a ton of shots in Nike, you're going to take a ton of shots in college. You know, what else uh, translates? You, what what other yeah. stats translate? Uh, blocking and rebounding. You know, if you block a ton of shots in Nike, you're going to be able to block shots uh, in almost any conference in the country. If you can grab rebounds on those levels, you can grab rebounds on on this level. And so that's a big part of why uh, bigs, in some sense, are more college ready. It's easier to translate them into a game and kind of get what you're getting. But high usage guards in particular are much more volatile. They're high upside. You know, you take a guy who's somewhat inefficient but shoots a ton in Nike and you plug him into college, uh, there's just there's a high beta there. He could become a three-year all-league player. He could start for all four years. We've got guys in the data that are like that. He also might get kicked off the team or transferred to a D2. <laughs> You know, there's a there's a high you know spread in the data, but you know that's that's part of the the challenge here, and that's something they deal with in the NBA too, is sort of building the chance on a guy that has a 30% chance of being an All Star, but a 50% chance of being out of the league, or do we just want the guy that's got a 60% chance of being a role player and a 20% chance of being a starter? Yeah, that's a, always a, a tough decision. I think. Uh... Depending on where you are and your job security is is where whether you take some uh, some chances or or uh, play a little high volatility recruiting game uh, to try and either move up or probably lose your job in some of these conferences. Um, so that that's uh, definitely something I'm sure staffs think about uh, going going forward. Um, all right, now we talked a lot about the high major level. Is there any Indicators or, or uh, for, for you know our level, mid major, you know low major, mid major. Is there anything that's different in those uh, recruiting worlds than than the high major guys? That there's probably better data. Uh, 
yeah so so that's that's what's really interesting and in, right now with our project is that uh we can figure out based on your stat line uh with eighty percent accuracy whether or not you're a high major player, so we can pick out those guys at eighty percent likewise at about eighty percent, we can find the guys that are not division one players. We're very good on those ends of the spectrum uh, those ends of the spectrum. The guys in the middle you know differentiating that sort of upper echelon low major player from that lower uh, mid-major player, that's where it's tough, and that's where the model uh, needs to be improved. That's where we're only batting, you know, 60%, 65%. Um, and that's where so you tell really me I wanna, actually got yeah. to actually do some work and, and watch these guys and scout and, and figure it out myself. No, no question. No question. <laughs> no question. And we would, you know, we would love to actually – build in some scouting data on this too. So take, you know, all those scouting reports that we all get from, you know, Florida Hoops Report and uh, Finkelstein and Keller and all those guys and punch in the ratings of the guys and see if that helps uh, inform the model, see if that makes it a little better or not. Yeah, I just, uh, I'm really curious to see where this goes uh, in a couple of years. Because like I said, I think, I think, Colleges make mistakes, so to base it on level of recruitment is great, but it doesn't answer the question of like, all right, who should I be looking for? Not, not. It, it doesn't answer the question of who I should be looking for yet, because of of there's a possibility that everyone's just an idiot and making mistakes. But if you find how they did in college, now that substantiates exactly what we're looking for is your AU stats, how does that translate into how you will play in college? So I'm curious, uh, you know, in a, in a year or two when we have actual data for that, what it shows, um, you know, and, and you'll have more data because I think some of these non, non-shoe non company tournaments are starting to starting to stat things as well. So it'll be, uh, it'll be good for you to get that data as well. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Right, I think uh, the future's really bright on it. I want to touch on something real quick. I know, uh, I know it's, uh, one of your fortes, but we, we touched on it a little bit and that was rebounding. So rebounding, I've always thought is one of those things that if you can rebound, you have a knack for the ball, you're going to have a knack for the ball, whatever level you play. Uh, obviously height and, and weight and strength and, and smartness helps, but if you can rebound at one level, you usually are able to find a way to rebound at the next level. So uh, you've done a lot of research on rebounding. Just talk us through a little bit of, of what you've seen uh, rebounding, um, both defensive and offensive rebounding. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, on your first uh, Stat Chat podcast, you actually had a guy that I worked with for a number of years, Kevin Hovde, uh, and he talked about hustle stats. And a huge aspect of our hustle stats are the rebounding stats. Uh, and we track mainly six things. We track box outs. We track missed box outs. We track good crashes. We track bad crashes. We track leaking out on defense and penalize that. And then we track uh, just tipping the ball, keeping it alive, getting a finger on it. All right. Uh, and so talking about defensive rebounding first. Uh, this is an area as a program we, we've excelled. You know, in the last seven years, uh, 
every single season, uh, you know, we've been in the top quarter of college basketball in defensive rebounding, and we've had two seasons in the top 10 and four in the top 20. Uh, and a big part of that, we really believe, is the stats. And so the main stat that we look at as a staff to measure our defensive rebounding is our box-out ratio. We expect to have a box-out rate of 80%, meaning for every two missed box-outs we have, we want to have eight good box-outs. Okay? And so on every invariably, shot, uh, just yeah. to go back on every shot, there's five guys on the court. Are you so you could be five for five, four for five, three for five, two for five, one for five, or zero for five? Is that how you're doing it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so we teach. I think we kind of teach the same thing most staffs teach. Uh, we teach the Tom Izzo hit, find, fetch. So hit your guy, go find the ball, and then you know go as hard as you can after the ball and try to get it. Uh, and that can mean different things for different positions. So if you're a center, hitting might mean you have to drive that guy out from under the, under the front of the rim. If you're a point guard, that might just mean you turn back, see that your guy is not crashing, and then you run in and try to hunt down the ball. Okay. And that's something you guys do post-practice on film Every possession that there's a shot, you'll you'll be like, okay, four guys are good. And even if they don't, like if there's a good box out, but the ball, you know, let's say you have a great box out, but there's a long rebound and the guy that box doesn't get the ball, that's that's success successful rebounding rate. Yes, if if you know if the guy wasn't pushed under, so if you if you get the guy on your back, but he drives you under the rim, that's no good. We know that's no good. But if you get the guy on your back outside of the paint and the ball comes out 20 feet, we're not going to penalize you for that. Okay. Okay. All right, so go back. So now, okay, so uh, 80% is very good rebounding rate, four to five guys uh, over the course of a game, getting that right. Um, now go on with what you were, with what you were saying. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Yeah, and, you know, so invariably, if we ever have a game where we get crushed on the offensive glass, when we stat it afterwards, we find that we boxed out at a lower rate than 80%. We were at 70%. We were at 68%, uh, something like that. And then the, the other big thing that we really harp on is for our guards to fly in. Because most teams nowadays only crash their five and four or their five, four and three. And so those one and twos, uh, rarely have to really box out. They just have to check for a half second that their guy is not crashing and then fly back in and help those bigs. And, you know, sort of as our program has developed, that has become more and more of an emphasis because, uh, you know, in the last three seasons or so, we've sort of moved from playing uh, 250, 260 pound centers and, you know, 220 pound foremen to playing more 215, 220-pound centers and, you know, 190, 200-pound foremen. You know, so as those guys are more undersized but also better offensively and able to do a lot more stuff on the other end, we had to do some things with the stats to try to help them out more on the glass. Which are? 
which are, yeah, so if we played, you know, if we had some of those undersized guys and we played like a great rebounding team like a Yale with Justin Sears or, you know, basically any team Steve Peichel has ever coached uh, at Stony Brook or Rutgers, uh, we would talk about face blockouts. Uh, so for our bigs, you know, going back to hit, find, fetch, sometimes you play these big, strong athletes and you go to hit them and they don't stop. You know, they keep pushing and they keep trying to drive you under the rim. And that's where Warney was awesome. And so what you need to do is you can't release and go after the ball or you're going to get pushed, you know, right under the basket and have no chance of getting it. So we would let those guys actually stay uh, face to their man and really dig their heels in the ground and just say, hey, your job tonight is not to let Justin Sears get the ball. Sure. Your job tonight sure. is not to let Jock Londale get the ball. And it's it's the responsibility of all of your teammates to fly in and actually corral the loose balls. So now take it the other way. Let's say you have Justin Sears. And I'm going to use Dwight Howard because I know his his number just because it's an NBA. Um, now his box out rate is terrible, right? Because he's so big and he pretty much cleans up anything around the glass. What will you do if you've had a rebounder like that? Would that hurt their? Uh, does that hurt your team or um, is it okay? Would you if you have a rebounder like that that can just I don't need to box out. I'm going to jump higher than you. I'm going to get there quicker. And I'm going to get the ball. What, what has it been your experience <laughs> yeah. with that? Well, well, first off, I'd say uh, I haven't coached one of those guys. So, you know, it, it would be great to. I would love to have one of those guys that grabs every single rebound. Uh, but, yeah, there's there's certainly some wiggle room on that. I mean, if I got Dwight Howard, I'm not that worried about him uh, blocking out because he's going to consistently win those one-on-one battles for the basketball, you know, those jump balls. Uh, if I got – and Alex Rosenberg was one of the greatest players in the history of Columbia. But I don't like his odds one-on-one against Justin Sears. I like it on the yeah. other end if Sears has to guard him. But I don't like it going for a for a jump ball in front of the rim, you know. And so that's sort of the trade-offs that we're, we're making is, you know, when are we just trying to get the stalemate here and when are we trying to, you know, gain an advantage? So your your guys' rebounding numbers are off the charts. You, you mentioned it, you know, top 20 at Columbia in the country and, and massive improvement at San, at San Fran. How much of that is the fact that you guys probably also have an eye for guys that hit, fetch, find? You know, the, the recruiting aspect of when we're recruiting guys that we already know are going to be good rebounders as opposed to let's make sure we emphasize two feet in the paint and, and uh, you know, emphasize turning and finding the ball if your guy's not not going. What's the balance between that, would you say, for, for the success you guys have had? Um, well, I will say in the last three years or so, we've really, we've you know, if you look at the numbers, we've gotten really, really good offensively. And part of that has been prioritizing in the front court guys that can dribble, pass, and shoot, and prioritizing skill. You know, guys like Luke Petrosic, guys like Alex Rosenberg, uh, even Nate Renfro, extremely quick, slashy, can get to the rim, drop fouls. And the downside of that is you give up something on the glass. 
And I would say with all of those guys I just mentioned, when we were uh, recruiting them in high school, because we even recruited Nate at Columbia before he went to San Francisco, uh, all of those guys, when you listed pros and cons for them, you would have listed rebounding as a con. Okay. Um, Now, on the other hand, we've also consistently for years played with big guards. And those big guards are plus rebounders for their position. You know, Mauro Lowe was an excellent rebounding point guard. And Grant Mullins was, you know, 6'3", strong, tough, and feisty, and would get in there. Isaac Cohen, you know, played the the point guard or the three. He was an exceptional rebounder at, you know, Mm -hmm. 6'4". So I would say the recruiting piece has certainly helped us in the backcourt and on the wing rebounding. Uh, but maybe has not been prioritized in the front court. Interesting. So recruiting guards that can rebound. All right. Now, now this is this is uh, this is going to be controversial. I think uh, I certainly disagree with it, but you seem to have numbers to back it up. Talk a little bit about offensive rebounding versus transition D. Yeah. So so this is uh, frankly this is a topic we've debated ad nauseum as a staff and. As a staff, we don't have a firm conclusion of change from from year to year. But uh, a few years ago, uh, I did some research. This was about three seasons ago. And I tracked every single three-point attempt or every single missed three that we took. And I tracked where each player was when the ball hit the rim. And what I found was uh, some really interesting data on your offensive rebounding rate based on how many people are in the paint. So if you have four guys in the paint when the ball hits the rim, you get back 52% of your misses. If you've got three guys, you get back 42% of those of your misses. Both of those would be like the best rebounding team in the country. If you have two guys in the paint, you get back 34% of your misses, which would be 45th. And if you have one guy, you get back 21%. That would be a terrible, terrible rebounding team. And if you got nobody in the paint, you only get back 17%, which would be the worst rebounding team in the country. So basically, the message to me was really simple. If you want to be good at offensive rebounding, you got to get a lot of guys in the paint when the ball hits the rim. Uh, and so what we tried three years ago uh, in 2015 is we said, all right, our five, our four, and our three, you guys get to crash every single time. And your goal is just to get as close to the basket as possible when the ball hits the rim. Uh, and just by doing that, we actually added a stat to our hustle stats called two feet in the paint, which is exactly what it sounds like. You know, I stopped the film, and when the ball hit the rim, were both of your feet in the paint. And if they were, you got a positive point on the hustle stats. And just by doing that, you know, basically solely by adding that hustle stat category, we made this huge jump from 298th in offensive rebounding in 2014 to 127th in 2015. With the same roster, essentially? Basically the same roster, yeah. Right, wow. Okay, so now now go on to how that affects transition defense, because I think we would all send five guys to the rim if we knew there was no downside. You know, at the end of the game, Shot goes if you're if you're losing, send five to the rim. There's no downside. So, but the downside in regular basketball is you don't have anybody back. So talk about talk about what you found in that. Yeah, uh, so, you know. So first, a, a disclaimer. You know, going into that season when we decided we were going to try to get on the glass, uh, we were definitely worried about transition D. I mean, it was a uh, something we talked about a ton. Uh, 
And we put a lot of effort and practice into making sure when that ball was shot and those three guys crashed that the other two were sprinting like hell uh, to get back and not allow any layups over the top and not allow anything worse than, you know, at the very worst, a three-on-two, okay? Uh, so there was a lot of time put in, more time than in season before. But the payoff of that is when we got to the end of the year and we looked back at all the data, we actually found, uh, first off, absolutely no relationship between an opponent's efficiency in transition and our offensive rebounding rate. So teams weren't getting any better shots in transition uh, when we got on the glass more than when we got on the glass less. And they only got ever so slightly more transition opportunities the more offensive rebounds we got. So uh, to put it concrete, if you went from an offensive rebounding percentage of 20%, which would be, you know, anemic, to 40%, which would be, like, the best in the country, we only saw a 3% increase in the number of transition opportunities we conceded. And uh, that trade-out was well worth it. When we plotted second-chance points generated against our transition points allowed, we found that for every one extra point we generated on second-chance points, we only gave up an additional one-third of a point in transition. You know, so we were making money on this trade, basically. That is that's, that is absolutely ludicrous to me. But, I mean, I guess that year it worked. I, I'd love to see. I think the NBA has done this, but it just seems crazy to me. Just in practice, as a player, if I'm back and I see everybody coming at me, my decision-making is easier. So extrapolating that into three, four guys, if they're all back, it's easier to match up, which creates less transition, easy buckets, which are the highest, you know, uh, yeah. efficiency points in the game. So to me, that's absolutely crazy. But maybe, maybe the sweet spot is two guys back and three hard to the rim, and then with two back, like you said, at worst, it's a three-on-two. We've all done three-on-twos in practice, and uh, every team I've been on has not been great on three-on-twos. It's, it's, a, it's a tough, tough uh, advantage situation to have in transition, I think, as compared to, you know, a three-on or a two-on-one or a four-on-two where there's going to be pass-pass, wide-open shot. Three-on-twos, you feel like you have to get a better shot than sometimes you take when in reality it might just be one pass wide open three, but you don't feel like that's a good shot three on two for some reason. But, uh, but that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if you track anything like that at your new school or if you can do that at San Fran or, or somebody else does it. Cause to me, I just can't. And I know I'm a stats guy, so I, I believe the numbers, but that's yeah. one that I just, I can't, I can't fathom because I, because of playing the game and, and, and coaching, seeing the, yeah. the result of that one. It just seems a, well, a little bit crazy. Let, let me play devil's advocate for one second. If you play against a great rebounding team and you're scouting them out, so you're playing Sears at Yale, you're playing Rutgers next year, what do you tell your team? Box out. Do you, yeah, you tell them to box out. You tell them, hey, we got to fight. You know, they're going to hit us. They're coming after the ball. What you don't tell them is you don't tell them, hey, they really crash. Uh, let's crank up the pace. Let's outlet the ball quickly. Let's uh, leak out when they run in. Uh, that's not what teams do. 
And maybe that's what they should do. Maybe that's the really the antidote to offensive rebounding. But what we've found and maybe what motivates this data is that if you can make that jump to actually be a good offensive rebounding team, teams are scared about it. And they'll they will actually try to run a little less. That's true. Yeah, I, I think another point that might might matter is how good a team is in transition. If you're not yeah. good in transition, you're at a very low risk sending four guys to the rim. And those numbers are all in synergy. You could look up opportunities and, and efficiency in transition. And, I, you know, we know some teams in our league that are really good and some that are really bad. So maybe against the really bad, that's when you say, hey, we're going all out to the rim, four guys to the rim. It won't hurt us in transition like it might against a really good team. So that 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 might be the answer too, right there. Now that now that we kind of talked about it, but uh, but that's uh, definitely some interesting stuff. Um, uh, it, it, this went on a little bit longer than I wanted, but it, I think it was really good. Uh, so I, I appreciate you coming on the show, John. Uh, I know you're excited to get on the road here. I, I'm sure I'll see you. But once again, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing a lot of data, a lot, a lot of numbers, and a lot of data that I'm sure not a lot of people have really. Uh, uh, seen or, or thought about for that matter. So thanks again, and uh, I will see you shortly. All right. Thanks, Coach. I appreciate it. No problem. Later.